We are in 2 Peter, starting a brand new series. If you would turn there, 2 Peter chapter 1. So let's pray, and we'll jump into this. Father, we love you. God, we thank you so much that you, Jesus, are our living hope, that you came out of the grave, and we have life, and we have hope, and we have purpose. And I pray that you today would minister your word to our hearts in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. You know, in the first part of 2021, we uh, took a real deep dive into 1 Peter. We spent about five and a half months uh, studying that book here on Sunday mornings. And then we took a little break over the summer, did a series in Proverbs. And this fall, we are now going to do a deep dive into 2 Peter. And I think this is a very pertinent book for us to be studying because the, the letter of 2 Peter has three primary purposes. First of all, it was written to alert readers or believers to the dangers of false teachers. And there's a lot of false teaching going on today, both inside the church and outside of the church. Secondly, it was written to remind believers that their personal faith should not remain static. In other words, that the Christian life is always meant to be one where we are moving forward and continuing to grow in our relationship with the Lord. And then finally, it was written to encourage believers in their faith and in their expectation of the Lord's coming. And the application for us today is that we are living during a time where Christians are under attack, both from outside the church, but even inside the church today. Sometimes those attacks are for the wrong reasons. We are also living at a time when the gospel is being distorted, both inside and outside of the church. And so it's very important that we know what we believe and why. And we are living in an age where the signs of the times are telling us that we are moving closer and closer to the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we need to realize that. You know, sometimes we can look at the world around us and feel like the world is falling apart. Guys, it's not falling apart. It is falling into place. And everything that the Bible said would be happening in these days leading up to the coming of Jesus, these things are happening right before our very eyes. And so we need to be ready. We need to be busy. Jesus told his disciples that they were to occupy until he comes. And you and I, as believers in this day and age, in 2021, we need to make sure that we are occupied with the right things. So 2 Peter is a pertinent book for us to be looking at. It's a short book, three chapters, but these three chapters are power-packed. Today we're going to zero in on the first four verses of chapter 1 in a message that I've entitled, We Have Been Given All That We Need. Let's read here beginning in verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. 
by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Pause there and give me your attention. Verse 1 introduces us to the author and his audience. The author is Simon Peter. And you recall when Jesus first met Peter, that he looked at him and he said as he was calling him, he says, you're Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter. And Jesus didn't do that with any of his other disciples. It was only Peter that he changes his name. And the name Peter is Petros in the Greek, and it means rock. And I love this about Jesus because what it tells us is that when Jesus looked at Peter, he saw what Peter was going to become. He saw that Peter was going to become a pillar in the church. That Peter was going to be a guy that would be used mightily. Now what's interesting about this though is that Peter's life was marked by a lot of stumblings. A lot of lack of faith. Some very dire moments. I mean, he denied that he even knew Jesus three times. I mean, if you know Peter's story, you know that his story is one that it's, it, it was messy. There was a lot of failures in Peter's story. And yet Jesus saw and he knew what he was going to do in Peter's life. In the same way, Jesus has a plan for your life and my life. And he sees what we're going to become in him. And yes, he knows that there's going to be times where we stumble. He knows that there's going to be times when it's messy. He he knows there's going to be times when, when it just doesn't look very well, when our flesh gets the best of us. But Jesus is committed to doing the work that he has completed in you, or that he has started in you. He's, he's committed to completing that work, and you can rest in that. And so this is the first thing that we need to realize. And this is Peter wants us to understand. This is what he's going to lay out for us, that this transformation that happened in his own life, it really happened and occurred as he grew in his understanding of who Jesus is. Because the more that we grow in our understanding of who Jesus is, and the more that we get to know him, the more that we become like him. And the more that we understand who Jesus is, the stronger and more effective we will be for his kingdom. And this is exactly what Peter's going to tell us here in the opening verses of this letter. So the author, Simon Peter, but notice also how he introduces himself. He calls himself a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now the term apostle carries with it a lot of authority. The word apostle means that he's a representative of Jesus. And there was only a small number of apostles. And Peter was one of the original 12. So you could say that Peter was a very important dude. But I want you to notice here that he calls himself first a bondservant. An apostle is second. And this really, I think, speaks to the fact that of the the change that had happened in Peter's life. 
You know, you read through the Gospels and you see the disciples were always arguing about which one of them was going to be the greatest. You know, that was a a favorite conversation or which one of them was going to be at the right hand of God. And I think Peter was at the forefront of a lot of those discussions. He was that type A personality. He was the one that said, you know, on the night that Jesus was going to the cross, although all the rest of these guys might deny you, not me, Lord, I'm with you to the end. I mean, that was Peter. That was his outlook. That was the way he looked at things. And, but he was humbled through his failings. And so he calls himself here a bondservant first. And what's interesting about that is a bondservant was a willing servant. You see, in that first century culture, a slave would serve in his master's household for seven years. After seven years, they could go free. But if that slave really loved his master and really loved that family, he could choose to become a bondservant, a willing servant, where he would serve in that household forever. In fact, they would even, you know, give them a a special piercing in the ear and they would wear a, a special earring so that anybody that knew them would look at them and go, hey, that guy's a bondservant. He must have a great master because he has chosen to stay in that house. That's what Peter saying here. I am a bondservant. My master Jesus is so amazing, so incredible that I am choosing to be his servant. And I think all of this speaks to the fact that Peter mentioning bondservant before apostle, that in his heart he was seeking to communicate that, look, I'm not trying to use some position to lord power over you guys. In fact, we saw this in 1 Peter chapter 5. When Peter was writing to all the other pastors and elders in the region, he referred to himself as a fellow elder. He's like, hey, I'm just one of you guys. I'm just like one of you. I'm not above you. I am just one of you. And I think this is a really good thing for all of us here to remember. That before you are the boss or the head of the house, or the head of the class, or the leader in that group, or the foreman, whatever it might be, before you are any of those things, you are a bondservant of Jesus Christ first and foremost. Guys, that's our identity in Christ. That's our identity in Jesus. And I wonder what would happen is we, if we head off into work tomorrow to the various places or we head off into school, the various places where God would put us, if we realize this is my identity first and foremost, I am a servant of Jesus. That's why I'm here. So that's the author. The next thing we see in verse 1 is the audience. He says to those, he's writing to those who obtained a like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice the description here of who he's writing to. And he speaks, it really highlights the equality of the believers. And there's three things that he touches on here. Number one, that we have a unified faith. He calls it a like precious faith. And the idea in faith here is a conviction concerning what we believe. It's a conviction concerning the truth that we all believe the same thing about ourselves, that we were lost in sin, and the same thing about Jesus, that Jesus is the one who redeemed us. There's a unity that we have in the faith. And notice, secondly, that he says it's something we have obtained. And the idea behind that word obtained is that it's something that, that we haven't 
earned, but it's something that's been given to us as a gift. And thirdly, the means through which we enter into this faith is it comes to us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, a miracle takes place. When you come to that place of recognizing, man, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, and you put your faith in Jesus, in that moment, God declares you in His Son, He says, you're righteous. That's how He sees you today. Isn't that amazing? I don't know what your night was like last night or what your week was like this past week, but as a follower of Jesus Christ, God sees you today justified, covered in the righteousness of Jesus. We have that commonality, and we're going to celebrate that today as we close our service by participating and celebrating the communion elements. But really, it speaks to what I remind you of all the time. That in this room and in this church family, no one has arrived, but we all are a group of people who are broken, but who are in the process of being transformed by a loving Redeemer. That's us. We haven't arrived, but we're, we're all in this, we're all a work in progress, and Jesus is doing that work in us. The next thing we see here, actually one other thing I wanted to point out is in the very end of that, that verse there in verse 1, it really, if you want to note this, we see a, a great little description here of the deity of Christ. The fact that Jesus was God in human flesh when he refers to him by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. He's referring to Jesus here as God. But the next thing we notice here in verse 2 is Peter's heart. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, I want you to know, this is more than just a benediction or a nice greeting. This statement really serves as the goal of what Peter wants to see happen in the lives of these people and really what God wants to see happen in the lives of us. What is that? Grace and peace be multiplied to you. The idea behind that word multiplied is that God's grace and peace would abound towards you. And this is really at the heart of what, what Peter desires for these people and God desires for us. The reason why we know that is if you turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3 in verse 18, here's how Peter ends the letter. He ends this letter by saying, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The beginning of the letter, he says, hey, let grace and peace be multiplied to you. At the end of it, he says, hey, would you, that, that you would grow in grace and knowledge. It's been said that grace is who God is, and peace is the result of knowing him. Grace is who he is. And the more we grow in grace, the more we experience his peace. So this letter begins with this admonition to that grace and peace would be multiplied. It ends with this admonition that we would grow in grace. Grace is really the key. And Peter understood this. Because you see, he had been shown such grace in his life. As I said, Peter's life was messy. Peter had a lot of failings. Peter denied that he even knew Jesus three times. He had many, many stumbles, but you know what? Here's where we see the grace. Jesus never gave up on him. How many of us would have given up on Peter? Let me think about it. 
I probably would have given up on him on the time when Jesus was telling his disciples, you know, hey guys, just want you to know I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die there, I'm going to be crucified. And Peter pulls him aside and says, Lord, you've got to quit talking like that. I mean, this is a downer, you know. And Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, that probably would have been, you know, the moment for me with Peter that I'd been like, you, you are an instrument of the devil, be gone. I'm done with you, you know. But Jesus doesn't do that. He was so patient. Even when Peter denied him three times. You see, grace is God's undeserved favor. And that's what we've all received. God has given us, shown us favor that we haven't deserved. We deserved hell and he gives us heaven. We deserve to be banished and he invites us to be a part of his family. We were, because of our sin and rebellion, we were his enemies, and he calls us his friends. You see, the Bible tells us that all of us, we have been saved by grace. Grace is the key. But we're not just saved by grace. This is why we grow in grace, is because we're also sustained by the grace of God. It's the grace of God that upholds us. And Paul would write, not only are we saved by grace and sustained by grace, but but the grace of God is sufficient so that when we find ourselves in situations where we're weak, through the grace of God, his power is made perfect in our weakness. Grace is the key to everything. And the more that we grow in grace and walk in grace, the more that we experience the peace of God. But I want you to notice that our growing in grace and peace, both here and in 2 Peter 3, is connected to our growing in our knowledge of who Jesus is. Look at verse 2 again. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And here's what I want you to catch. When Peter speaks of knowledge here, he's not just speaking of an intellectual knowledge. He's not just speaking of information, of our growing and our understanding of who Jesus is. It includes that. It involves that. That's why apologetics is important. That's why we need to know what we believe and why. It's why we need to know and understand that everything that we believe as followers of Jesus, as Christians, hinges on the resurrection. Hope you know that. That living hope that we were just speaking of and singing of. Everything hinges on the fact that Jesus declared himself to be God and then proved it when he died on the cross and three days later rose again from the dead. We need to understand that the Bible doesn't merely validate the resurrection, but in reality, it's the resurrection that validates the Bible. It's the key. You know, you young people sitting over here, you might go to your schools or you might one day head off to college and you will have, you know, a professor that's going to challenge you on the reality of creation. The idea that the Bible tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. You know why you can believe that? It's because Jesus spoke of creation as a fact, that it was God who created the heavens and the earth. The risen Lord is the one who said, hey, this is how the world came into existence. Our world right now is all confused about marriage and what marriage is really supposed to look like. Jesus spoke of marriage, that marriage is between a man and a woman, period. 
Our world is confused about gender today. Jesus spoke of gender, that God made them both male and female. And so we don't need to be confused. In the areas of, you know, people want to challenge today the Bible and say, oh, that story of Jonah, how could that happen? You know, a guy named Jonah gets swallowed by a big fish. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. We can believe in the story of Jonah because Jesus spoke of the story of Jonah being swallowed by a big fish as a fact. Sodom and Gomorrah, these two cities being destroyed and people scratch their heads and go, did that really happen? We can believe that because Jesus spoke of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as a fact. And here's what we need to realize and understand. Jesus cannot be right about who he is, that he's God in human flesh and the only way to heaven. And he proved that through his death and his resurrection. He can't be right about that and be wrong about creation and wrong about marriage and wrong about Jonah and wrong about gender and wrong about Sodom and Gomorrah and whatever else we want to throw in there. So the resurrection is the key. So when Peter says that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, that word knowledge, it definitely speaks of an intellectual, informational, that we know what we believe and why. But it's bigger than that. Because the word that he uses here literally speaks of a knowledge that comes to experience. In other words, it's the idea that we've experienced in God. That we're living in a relationship with God. That there's a vibrancy to the fact that we know God, that we have experienced God. And it's living in in a, a relationship with Him. And there is a contagiousness to that vibrancy, to that experience. I love what Sean McDowell, I was listening to an interview of his recently and. And he's so brilliant, such a great apologist. And and he made this point. He says, one of the main reasons why young people today are turning from their faith in large numbers is not because, catch this, it's not because they don't know the truth. It's not because somebody has debunked their faith, but it's because they really haven't ever experienced God. And he said, the two go hand in hand. It's truth, very important, plus experience. He put it this way. When students understand their personal need for God and experience God's grace firsthand, they can develop a faith that lasts. It's one of the reasons why I love what Tyler and Aaron are doing right now in our student ministries. Because they are creating, they they are teaching the truth. No doubt, strong in teaching the truth. But they also are creating an atmosphere where our young people can experience God. And I just got to say to all of you young people here, you guys bless my socks off. You guys bless me. I love watching you guys worship. I love just the, the heart that I see in you that you guys have for Jesus. It blesses me. I'm so glad. I love the first Sunday of the month when you guys are, are in here. You bring a life. Not that you guys are dead, but you, bring, <laughs> you guys bring a life, man, into this. That I, I, I love it. I love it. I love all of you. <laughs> you know, when I was a youth pastor, very much like what's happening here on Thursday nights, we had our youth group meeting on Wednesdays. 
And we had a lot of kids coming that were from the public school and their parents didn't go to church here. They were unchurched. They didn't know the Lord. And every single week, kids would get saved. And after a kid would respond and give their life to the Lord, I often would talk to them and I would say, so what was it tonight that led you to, you know, put your faith in Jesus? And I can't tell you. I mean, I, I, I heard this several times that they would say, well, it wasn't anything that you said. Now, that's not something a preacher wants to hear, right? Well, it wasn't anything that you said. I'm like, really? I'm like, no, no, no. It happened way before you even started talking. And this is what they, I, I heard over and over again. Someone would say to me, say, you know what? You know when it, when it happened? It was during that thing that you guys call worship. And I'm watching this guy that's on my football team. And I'm watching him standing there, and he's singing at the top of his lungs, and his hands are raised, or, or some girl saying, I'm watching this girl in my science class, and, and this, as she's worshiping, and it dawned on me in that moment, he has, she has something that I don't have, and I want it. And it was in that moment. I, I could have got up before I even gave the Bible study and said, okay, who here tonight wants to get saved? And a whole bunch of them would have said, I do. Because they were watching this vibrancy that was happening in the life of their friends and their classmates. And they realized they have something that I don't have. And I want that. I need that. That's what Peter's talking about. It's a knowledge that comes by experience. You see, the Christian life is not simply knowing facts about Jesus, but it it involves experiencing his power and his presence in our lives. In the next two verses, Peter builds on this connection between the knowledge of God and the power of grace. Look at verse 3 again. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given, or has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Catch this, don't miss this, very, very important. Peter is building on a very important truth here, and this is the truth. We have been supplied. Let me hear you say that. We have been supplied. Let me hear you say that. Say it loud. We have been supplied. This is what Peter wants us to understand. He says, we have been given through his divine power everything that pertains to life. And he's talking there about real life. You see, when the Jewish people spoke of eternal life, they didn't look at it as a longevity of life only, living with God forever, but they, they, they looked at it as a quality of life that starts right now in walking with God, living in relationship with God, and experiencing God. That was their view of eternal life. So he says, we have been given through his divine power everything that pertains to life and godliness. I think the best definition of godliness would be Christ-likeness. And isn't that what we're all yearning for, right? Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and that more abundantly. And we're like, man, I want that. Because what I'm experiencing right now, it ain't that. I I want that abundant life. Life and godliness. Becoming more like Jesus. Because we know that that's the goal. 
We know that's God's end game. Romans 8, 29. This he says, this is, this is my goal for you. I want to conform you into the image of my dear son, my own dear son. That's his desire for us. Peter says everything we need, don't miss this, everything that we need to experience those two things, life and godliness, have been given to us through his divine power, his divine promises, and his divine nature. We have been supplied with everything that we need. It's important that we catch this because when we come next week to verse 5, we're going to hear Peter say this. Therefore, because of this, because you've been given his divine power and divine promises and, and, and divine nature, add to your faith. And he's going to list these things. But here's the problem. Oftentimes when we hear the word add, we think of addition. And we think of of it being like something that we've got to muster up on our own. Something that that we've got to gather from the outside. Okay, I've got to add now to the work of Jesus. And I've got to figure out how to add these things to my, my life. That is not what Peter's saying here. That's why a better, if you want to write in your Bible, it's okay, you're allowed to write in your Bible. But if you want to write in your Bible where it says add in verse 5, put supply. Supply your faith with these things. This is what Peter's saying, that through his divine power and his divine promises and his divine nature, you have been supplied, you've been given everything that you need for life and godliness, so now supply your faith, supply your belief, supply your living for Jesus with what you have already been given in Jesus. Think of it this way. If someone tomorrow deposited $50 million into your bank account, you wake up in the morning and you see a little thing on your phone, you know, deposit has been made, $50 million. You're like, that is awesome, right? That'd be pretty sweet. But then months go by and you're still driving that beater of a car that breaks down all the time and you're still collecting food stamps and you're still wondering, like, man, what am I, what am I going to eat tomorrow? You know, I have enough money for, for groceries. You would not be supplying your life with what has been put into your bank account. And that would be foolishness with a capital F. Now, you take, man, I've got $50 million in the bank. I'm going to live like it. That's the idea. Or think of it this way. Let's say somebody gives you a brand new house. That'd be pretty cool, right? Say it's yours. They sign over the title deed and it's brand new, just built. And you go to look at it and you walk inside. But the problem is, is they're, they're, it's empty. It's just a big box. There's no furniture. There's no appliances. There's, there's nothing. Well, if you take this idea that some people have, okay, I need to add now to my house. I'm thinking, okay, I got to take from my bank account. I got to go and buy all these different things and figure out how I'm going to furnish this house. But what if the person that, that gave you the house said, now I have a warehouse, full of appliances, top of the line, full of furniture. And you go down free of charge, take anything that you want, and you use that to supply your house, to furnish your house. That's the idea that Peter's getting at here. We have been given in Jesus through his divine power, his divine promises, and his divine nature, everything that we need. So now take from that and supply your faith. 
Supply your life with what you have already been given. You go and furnish your faith. His divine power. What does he mean by that? Well, Paul told us in the book of Ephesians that the very same power that brought Jesus forth from the grave is available to you and I. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that so cool? The same power that brought Jesus out of the grave is available to you and I. We just need to believe that. We just need to know that. And we need to walk in that. And this divine power comes to us through the ministry of the person of the Holy Spirit. When Zerubbabel, the governor of Judea, had this insurmountable task that was laid before him. And he's trying to figure out, how am I going to do this? God comes and speaks to him and says, Zerubbabel, it's not going to be by your might. It's not going to be by your power, but it's going to be by my spirit. That's how you're going to do it. And that same thing is true for every single one of us in this room. How do you and I, how do we be the husband or the wife that God has called us to be? How do we be the witness and the worker and the servant that Jesus calls us to be? It's not through our might or our strength or our ingenuity, but it comes through the work and yielding to and depending upon the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But here's what's interesting. I read this startling statistic recently. This was in the Christian Post. That 62% of self-identified born-again Christians contend that the Holy Spirit is not a real living being, but merely a symbol of God's power, presence, and purity. In other words, 62% of born-again Christians, according to the Post, deny the deity of Christ. They deny the Trinity. I mean, the Holy Spirit isn't real. He's just a power. He's not a person. He's not living, he's just a power, he's just a... No, 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 no. No wonder the church is so anemic today. You know, two men were at Niagara Falls. And, and the one man said to the other man, as they watching just the power of all that water gushing, you know, over the falls, he says, there is the greatest display of unused power in the world today. The other man looked at him and says, no, the greatest display of unused power in the world today is the lack of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Through His divine power, His Holy Spirit living inside of us, we have been given everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness, being who God has called us to be. Paul talks in Ephesians how we are in a spiritual battle, but he says we can stand strong and we can be victorious. How? He says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Again, that's a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So we have been supplied with his divine power, also his divine promises. Look at verse 4 again. By which have been given to us exceedingly great. Everybody say exceedingly great. And precious promises. His divine promises have been given to us. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. That is so awesome. 
Yes and amen means they're certain and true in Jesus. And guess what? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, you have been placed in Christ. That's your position. That's your identity. That's how God sees you. So that means all the promises of God are available to you. They belong to you because you are in Christ. Exceedingly great and precious promises. And we supply our lives by standing on the promises of God, by being promise believers. I read of one woman who, when she would be reading her Bible and she would see a promise, she would write a T next to it, meaning tried. I'm going to try this. I'm going to stand on this. I'm going to believe this. And then when she would see that that promise was true, she'd go back and write a P next to it, meaning proven, that, that these promises are tried and proven, that our God is reliable, that he is faithful, that his promises can be counted on. And you know what the chief promise is? Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you guys orphans, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, my spirit to come and live inside of you. What do you call him? The promise of the Father. You don't have to do this on your own. You don't have to do this in your own strength. I'm going to supply you with what you need through my spirit. It's a part of the new covenant that Jesus came to establish that he said, I'm going to place my spirit inside of you and he's going to cause you to walk in my commandments. He's going to do a work in you, in other words, on the inside that's going to be manifested on the outside. It's it's through the precious promises that we receive the life of the Holy Spirit. So we have been supplied with divine power, divine promises, both connected to the Holy Spirit. But then he also says a divine nature. Again, verse 4. By which you've been given exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, note that, through these, you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Listen, the moment that you are born again, the moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, not only are your sins forgiven, your guilt removed, And God says, you are now righteous in my eyes. But you in that moment are given a new nature. A divine nature. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's a new start. Brand new. The old has passed away. It's a new start, but it's also a new nature. John put it this way. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice, keyword there, practice of sinning. Doesn't mean we don't sin, but we don't practice sin. He says, here's why. Because God's life is in them, so they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. And this new nature is also connected to the Holy Spirit because when John says that his life is in him, that's what he's talking about. He's placed his spirit inside of us. That's what gives life to us. God's spirit comes into us and our spirit that was dead is brought to life. And what Peter is wanting us to understand is that through depending upon his divine power, walking according to his divine promises, that we become, we're in the process of becoming partakers, or maybe a better word would be participants of the divine nature. You see, it's a process that happens the more that we grow in Jesus. 
The more that we understand that we're growing in our knowledge of Him, we're growing in our experience of Him, that this transformation is taking place. And this is what Peter experienced in his own life. He went from being this guy that was always falling on his face to suddenly this guy. Didn't mean he didn't still make mistakes, but he was much more consistent as he was living in the grace and depending upon the Holy Spirit. A transformation took place. And this is what Peter is wanting us to understand. This is what it's all connected to. We've been given, we've been supplied. Divine power, divine promises, and a divine nature. But here's the problem, here's the struggle. The minute that you are given that new nature, the problem is, is your old nature is still alive. It's still there, and there's this conflict. There's this battle Paul refers to as the battle between the flesh and the spirit. So that the old nature wants to serve self and please self. The new nature wants to serve Jesus and please Jesus. The old nature wants to build my kingdom and is about my agenda. But the new nature, the work of the spirit inside of me is is about his kingdom and his agenda. The old nature was an enemy of God, but in the new nature, I'm being drawn to God because Paul said in Galatians chapter four, the very spirit of God is inside of us on a daily basis. What is he doing? He's crying out, Abba, Father, Daddy. You wake up in the morning and the Holy Spirit's like, Daddy, I just want to be with you. I just want to draw near to you. But the starting place of all of this is as we are learning to grow in our knowledge and our experience of walking with Jesus. And I'll close with this. You see, I think we all go through this kind of a process. When we first get saved, for many of us, especially if you came out of a you know, very sinful background, and you came to that point and realized, man, I'm lost, I'm in sin, I'm doomed, I need a Savior, and you put your faith in Jesus, and you begin to know Jesus as your Savior. And then as you grow a little bit more and you begin to learn about Jesus and experience Jesus, you come to to realize he's not just my savior, he's my friend. He loves me. He's with me. He's for me. And you grow a little bit more and you come to realize that, that not only is he my savior and my friend, but he wants to be my king. This is all about his kingdom. Sometimes we even go from this shift where we were thinking in our minds that Jesus existed for us. But we come to realize, no, he doesn't exist for me. I exist for him. That my whole life is really about to bring him glory. And the more that you come to realize that he's my king, he's my Lord, and, and I'm, I'm, I need to be about you know, his kingdom, and that's for my heart. Then you begin to realize that Jesus is also your supplier, that he's the one who supplies you with everything that you need to grow in in Jesus and to serve him. And then you come to that place where you begin to realize he's my everything. He's my everything. It's all about him. One of the greatest and most powerful life-changing things that anybody ever said to me was my senior year of high school. My high school pastor said to me, he says, Rob, you know what your problem is? 
When somebody says that to you, you know what your problem is? You know you're in trouble, right? You know, you know what your problem is? And this is what he said. He says, Jesus, he's just a part of your life. He's not the center of your life. And it was absolutely true. I didn't realize it until he said it, but I did what a lot of us do. I kind of compartmentalized my life. If my life was a pie, Jesus was one of the slices. I loved him. I was saved. But he was just a slice. Sometimes a big one, sometimes a small one, depending the season and what was going on. But also in the midst of all of that was I had my sports that I was playing. I had my school. I had my family. I had my friends. I had my girlfriend. And Jesus was just a part of all of that. And what what the Lord really showed me is, hey, I don't want to just be a part. I want to be the whole. I want it to be me and you in the middle of that pie and everything else is revolving around my relationship with you. That's when Jesus becomes your everything. And as we close today, we're going to partake of communion, the bread and the cup, the elements that remind us of what Jesus did for us in leaving heaven, coming to this earth, going to the cross, dying on the cross for our sins, three days later rising again from the dead, So we're remembering that, we're celebrating that, but also in communion, I think it's an opportunity for all of us today to say, to to really evaluate, where, where is Jesus in your life? Is he just Savior? Is he Savior and friend? Is he King? Or have you come to that place in your life where you're like, you know what, Jesus, you're my everything. As we partake of communion, we, in, in, in essence, as we are partaking of the elements, that's what we're saying. Jesus, I'm identifying myself with you. And you are my everything. My life is about you. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for sending your son. We thank you, Lord, for the life that we have in you. And we thank you, God, that we have been supplied with everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. And Lord, I pray for anybody here right now in this room that maybe doesn't know you, they don't even know you as Savior yet, that right now in this moment that they would make a decision to admit that they are sinners and they need a Savior and that they would call out to you just in the quietness of their heart. And the Bible says that when anybody calls upon the name of the Lord, that they shall be saved. And Jesus is going to meet you right now in this moment, forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of your guilt. And he's going to declare that you are righteous in him. If you just do that. But as we take this moment to just sing and partake of these elements, I pray that it would be for all of us today a moment where we are saying, Jesus, I want you to be. I recognize, Lord, that it's, it's all about you. Be my everything. We thank you, Lord.